Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. By God's grace, we're here this morning, and we have before us a text that is probably uh, very familiar to most of you. When I was an enlisted man in the Navy, we were taught that familiarity breeds contempt. That's certainly the truth, I think, in the chain of command, but when it comes to Scripture, familiarity does not breed contempt. It, It breeds a greater love for Christ. As we grow more and more familiar with the Word of God, uh, it really increases our love for Him. That's why it's so crucial for us to be in God's Word each and every day. That's why we're commanded to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. As we get into God's Word together, uh, let us lay aside every weight, uh, every fantasy football update, any kind of sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus. That's what we're here for this morning. We're looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. The text before us this morning is a transformational text, if we allow it to be. It's a life-changing, a life-giving text There are many followers of Jesus Christ who would point to this text, to the text that really opened their eyes to their need for Christ and how to be born again. We're going to narrow our focus down to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, but as in weeks previous, we're going to start by looking at the whole passage together. So I'm going to read aloud from verse 1 all the way down through 10. I invite you to read along with me. And you... We're dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the very word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. John Newton was born in 1725 in a small town called Wapping, England. He was born the son of a Puritan woman named Elizabeth and a seagoing captain whose name was John Newton. Elizabeth was a Bible-believing woman, and she taught John the the good news about Jesus Christ from an early age, but unfortunately, she died while he was still at an early age, just two weeks before he turned seven years old. Newton, by the time he turned 11, was already going to sea with his dad. As a young adult, he signed up to work on a merchant ship, and then he was eventually captured by the British Navy and compelled into service with them. John Newton is at least partially responsible uh, for giving sailors a bad reputation. And when you think about sailors, what do you, what do you think about, right? No offense. 
right? But the, a lot of them can be drunks, and they could have foul mouths, and you know, they sit around singing sea shanties, right? This, this, was, this was John Newton. Uh, he was a drunk. Uh, he prided himself in just how foul his mouth could be. Uh, he would try to find the Christians on board the ship and just be near them and so that he could spew out as much vulgarity as possible in hopes of offending them. John Newton was not fond of naval service, and his shipmates were not fond of him. At one time, he deserted from the Navy, and he ended up getting captured, and he was brought back to the ship and stripped to the waist, and he was given eight dozen lashes. I know what you're thinking. They said there would be no math. Uh, I did the math for you, 12 times eight, that's, that's 96 lashes, right? That, that's a lot. That'll leave a mark. Uh, and it did. Newton eventually found his way to the Afri African continent, uh, where he was given into the care of this African queen. Instead of caring for him, she indentured him as a slave. She had a lot of other slaves, but he was her only white slave, and she had a particular hatred for him. Uh, she beat him. Uh, she starved him. She neglected him. And eventually he had escaped from her, and he was able to find his way to a ship that was heading back up to England, the Greyhound, and so he was traveling back up to England. And one day he was awakened by a large volume of water splashing in his face as he was laying in his rack. The, the Greyhound found itself into, in a terrible storm. And um, yeah, several of the, his fellow sailors were washed out to sea. It was in that storm that Newton prayed to God for mercy. He, he uttered these words, Lord, have mercy. And it was probably the first time that he had prayed since his mom was still alive. Well, by God's grace, uh, there was some cargo in the hole that actually shifted after he had prayed and, and blocked a hole that was in the ship. And that was a, a lot of water was coming through that, but it was blocked. And after a short time, the weather actually started to clear up. From that time forward, Newton was a, a different man. Uh, many who do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ would say that John Newton was saved that day. In fact, John Newton himself initially said that he was saved that day. Uh, he stopped cussing. He, he stopped drinking. And he started reading his Bible. In many ways, he was a changed man, but in some ways, he remained the old man. Uh, even though he had that close call at sea, he would actually go on to captain uh, a couple of different slave ships. And when he was forced to stop being a seagoing captain of slave ships uh, because of a stroke that he had at sea, he still continued to invest in the slave trade, even after that. But eventually, he became a priest in the Anglican church. And pointing back to that near death at sea, John Newton would later write, I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word until a considerable time afterwards. Uh, the amazing grace that John Newton writes about in what's probably the most famous hymn of, of all time it wasn't God's common grace in saving and sparing his life on the Greyhound. It was the amazing grace of God saving the soul of this wretched sinner through his faith in Jesus Christ. And that didn't happen for quite some time after that day on the Greyhound. I titled this morning's sermon, Saved from God, by God, through God, for God. And it's my hope that as we dive in Ephesians 2, uh, 8 to 10, that we'll come away from this which, with much more gospel clarity. In my, it's my hope that we'll see that through these three verses, 
what it means to be saved. What are we saved from? What are we saved to? How are we saved? How are we not saved? How do we know if we're saved? These are all really good questions to be wrestling with. And the good news is that it's an open book test, right? And you've got your books open to Ephesians chapter 2, so let's get to it. We'll start with verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Let's stop there. These are the exact same words that Paul had written in his little parenthetical statement back in, in verse 5. For by grace you have been saved. And speaking of the God who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, because, or even when we were dead in our trespasses, Paul said that this God made us alive together with Christ. Paul then paused to make it clear that such a salvation was by grace alone. By grace you have been saved. Then now in verse 8, he added the words for and through faith. For, by grace you have been saved through faith. And the word for connects the, this thought with what Paul had been writing about previously, namely the, that description of God's great love with which he loved us in Christ Jesus. We'll, let the words, we'll look at the words through faith in a couple of minutes, but first, let's make note of the fact that, that salvation is necessary. By grace, you have been saved. You must be saved. That can serve as point number one in your sermon outlines. You must be saved. There's a real danger in assessing our need for salvation apart from the Word of God. Of course, this has always been true, but I think and it's particularly true in 21st century America. The widespread nature of, of comfort and affluence uh, in our culture is unprecedented in human history. And this comfort will, will oftentimes blind us uh, to our need for salvation. People look at their checkbook, uh, they open up their bank app, and they see some zeros uh, on the right side of some numbers, and, and they feel like things are, are going okay. Uh, they might live on a, on a golf course or see palm trees outside their window or a beautiful mountain view, whatever the case might be, and they think, well, I need to be saved from this? There's a thinking that dominates many of our, our churches in America today, and it's a thinking in which people believe that prosperity is a reward from God for having enough faith, the right kind of faith, a strong faith. I would submit to you that that most, in most cases, prosperity is not a gift from God, but rather it's a subtle attack from the enemy who would have your attention focused on the things of the earth rather than on things above. And generally speaking, mankind lives by sight. We're caught up with the things that are here and now, the, the tyranny of now really consumes our thoughts. Um, if, if, if things are going well for us, say financially speaking or, or with our health, uh, we, we are lulled into a sense that we're doing okay. Uh, there's this false belief that we're okay. Paul's letter to the Ephesians and the rest of Scripture do not allow us to come to that same conclusion, though. Let's quickly remind ourselves of who we are apart from Christ. Uh, Paul noted that at the beginning of this chapter that apart from Christ, we are dead and our trespasses and sins. In his letter to the Romans, Paul said that the just penalty of sin is death. 
and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's an all-encompassing all. It includes you. It includes me. It includes all of mankind, which Paul describes as, as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. These are not terms of endearment. These are terms of condemnation. Turn your Bibles back to John chapter 3 with me. John chapter 3. I think Jesus' conversation here with Nicodemus is extremely helpful in seeing our necessity for salvation. John chapter 3. In this chapter, Jesus was meeting with a Pharisee whose name was Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wanted to meet with Jesus at nighttime. Uh, he had a reputation to uphold. He, he didn't want his fellow Pharisees to, to see him. But he was curious about this Jesus. And he had heard about some of the signs that he performed. And so he wanted to know more from this man. We'll pick up their conversation at verse 16. Uh, up to this point, Christ was explaining to Nicodemus that you must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Now look at John 3.16 with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Skip down to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The one who does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because of the sin that he has committed against a perfect and holy God. God created mankind to be his image bearers in the world. And as the creator, he gets to set the standard by which his image bearers are to operate. And the standard that he set is to be holy as he is holy. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God in the garden, all of mankind has fallen short of God's glory. Mankind stands condemned already before a holy God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God sent his son into the world. He loved us enough to send his son so that whoever believes in Jesus would no longer be condemned, but instead would have eternal life. But whoever does not believe is condemned Already, the wrath of God remains on those who refuse to believe in Jesus. Salvation is necessary. You must be saved because God is holy and we are not. Salvation is necessary because God's perfect justice demands a reckoning for every sin. Salvation is necessary. You must be saved because the penalty for sinning against a holy God, even once, is death. And let's be clear. None of us have sinned only once against this holy God. Salvation is necessary because without it, we are condemned and the wrath of God hangs over us. Because we have sinned, we need to be saved from God. This is what is referred to as the bad news of the good news. Uh, it's against the black backdrop of this bad news that, that Paul bursts forth 
with the good news of Christ that we see in verse 5 and verse 8 back in Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved. Salvation is necessary, and that is bad news. But salvation is possible, and that's the best news ever. If salvation is possible, then what must I do to be saved? It really is the age-old question, isn't it? There was a rich young ruler who came to Jesus, and he said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? According to what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, God does the saving, not you. This is really the main point of what Paul was communicating in this part of his letter. That's point number two of our outline as well. God does the saving, not you. Let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's critical that we correctly understand what Paul was saying here. Let's start by defining grace. If it is by grace that we have been saved, it's imperative that we know what grace is, right? More often than not, when you search for a definition of the word grace, especially in Christian literature, you'll come across a meaning that usually includes the words unmerited favor, unmerited favor. And that's a relatively simple, uh, simple term, and I don't want to overcomplicate it by over-explaining it, but in order to properly understand grace, I think we kind of have to see how how these two sides come together, how, how the unmerited portion goes hand in hand with the favor portion. And Charles Spurgeon wrote a little book called All of Grace. I commend it to you. It's, it's really fantastic, and it was really helpful in thinking through what unmerited favor really looks like. Listen to Spurgeon's words. Because God is gracious, therefore sinful men are forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It's not because of anything in them or that ever can be in them that they are saved, but because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. Did you catch what Spurgeon was saying there? Now, sinful men are not saved because they deserve it. Uh, they're not saved because they've earned it. They're, they're not saved because of any sort of righteousness that they've been able to accumulate. They're not even saved because of some sort of potential that God sees in them. They're only saved by God's goodness, by his mercy, by his pity, by his compassion, by his amazing grace. When Paul writes twice that it is by grace that we have been saved, he is placing great emphasis upon that point, that it is God and God alone who does the saving. Look back just at the verses two, uh, 4 through 7 there in chapter 2. Take note of the subject of, of the sentence. Uh, who is taking the action here? God loved us. God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. God seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We didn't do any of that. That is all God's doing All we did was the sinning that made that necessary for us. With that in mind, we see that the grace of God is the basis of salvation. It is by grace that you have been saved. And so if we cannot earn or or merit God's salvation, how do we access it? Paul says that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
God's grace is the basis of salvation, and faith in Jesus Christ is, is the means by which we receive that grace. We receive it as a gift of God. And Jesus gives the invitation, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The way in which we answer that open invitation is by coming to Christ in faith. Spurgeon painted a beautiful picture of this when he said that God is the fountainhead out of which comes pouring his saving grace. And that fountain is a is a, it's a never-ending fountain. It has no bottom. That There are immeasurable riches of His grace. And the means by which that, that grace comes to us is what Spurgeon called it, a river of faith. Uh, the, this river was the channel by which we accessed that outpouring, the overflowing outpouring of grace from God. Another commentator likened God's saving grace to a powerful medicine uh, and he compared the faith, and compared faith to a syringe uh, which delivers the medicine uh, to the dying patient. Of course, analogies break down if you press them too far, but uh, in this word picture, you can see that it's the medicine that saves the dying man. Right? It's, it's not the syringe. The cured man wouldn't point this, to the syringe and say, that thing saved me. No, it, it was the medicine that was delivered through the syringe that, that did the saving, that did the healing. He, the, he accessed the, the medicine with the syringe, though. If faith is the only means by which we can access God's saving grace, uh, we better have a solid understanding of what faith is and what faith is not. Uh, we live in a really, in a strange culture. Uh, today, in today's day and age, faith in the, the God of the Bible is, is really frowned upon. I mean, you can get canceled, you can get fired. Uh, if you say anything that really even has a scent of biblical truth, uh, it's really frowned upon in our culture. Yet the, there are words like faith and, and believe that are really kind of thrown out there and, and even celebrated. Just yesterday, I saw a car that had the word believe on the bumper sticker. Uh, and the last letter, E, was kind of morphing into a, a magic wand of some sort, and there was like pixie dust or some sort of sparkles or something coming off of it. And it's just the word believe, right? Well, believe what? Believe what? And we're told by Disney, all we have to have is, is, is faith, is have faith. Have faith in faith, our culture tells us. Don't have faith in Christ. No, that, that would be wrong. We'll cancel you for you. I'll cancel you for that. Biblical faith is, is not an empty-headed belief in something despite all of the evidence to the contrary. Biblical faith is not faith in faith, but rather there is really a clearly defined object of biblical faith, and that object is Jesus Christ as revealed to us by the pages of Scripture. James Montgomery Boyce teaches that genuine biblical faith, the kind of faith that accesses God's saving grace, has three elements. You might want to write these down. Three elements of, of genuine biblical faith. Uh, first of all, biblical faith begins with knowledge. This has to be the first element uh, because it's impossible to believe something unless you know what it is that you're supposed to be believing, right? 
That makes sense, that the faith that accesses God's saving grace begins with a knowledge of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul wrote to the Romans, how then will they call on him, on Jesus, in whom they have never believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul would conclude by saying, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Biblical faith begins with knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a knowledge of the very things that Paul had been writing about in Ephesians 2. In our natural state, apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins and are objects of God's wrath. But God, because of his great love, reached out to save us through the work of Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus is namely his atoning sacrifice on the cross where he died in our place. He took on the wrath of God, which was poured out on him. This was a substitutionary atonement. Jesus died the death that we deserve to die. Our sin was imputed to him on the cross, and his righteousness is imputed on those who would believe in him as Lord and Savior. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, even though he knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to John Calvin's words on on properly defining saving faith. We shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And saving faith begins with knowledge of the gospel of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. And the second element is what Boyce calls a heart response. So we go from knowledge to a heart response. Saving faith is not merely an an intellectual assent to certain facts that are written about Jesus. It's a response to to that knowledge of that truth. The the faith that accesses God's saving grace makes the journey from from the top of the head and, and sinks down into the heart. Knowledge becomes belief. Remember when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Up to that point, Peter was accumulating knowledge, listening to Jesus' teaching, watching him perform miracles, and he was able to go from knowledge of that to to belief. There was a heart response. You are who you say you are. You are the long-expected Messiah. You are God, a very God. And finally, the third element of saving faith is, is commitment. Commitment. And this is really casting oneself upon Christ, resting on his promises, and trusting in his work on the cross on your behalf. And Doubting Thomas finally got to this point when he saw the risen Christ. And he said these words, my Lord and my God. He was able to see Christ, and Christ would even ask him, do you believe because you see? He said, blessed are those who don't see and yet still believe. Knowledge, heart response, commitment. 
The kind of faith that allows us to receive God's saving grace is marked by these elements. Uh, Before we move on to our final point, I just need a minute to kind of geek out on some grammar. Okay, bear with me. Um, Let's look at verses 8 and 9 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's important for us to understand what the this and it is referring to. As we read these verses in English, we can easily be led to believe that this is referring to the word that preceded it, the word faith, right? That's the antecedent there. Faith is not your own doing. Faith is the gift of God. That's absolutely true, but the Greek pronouns for this and it don't match up with the Greek word for faith. In a lot of foreign languages, there there are nouns that have gender, and and the words that modify them, then pronouns and adjectives. This is where the geeking out part gets in. Uh, those nouns and the adject- or the the adjectives and pronouns have to match in gender the, the word that they're modifying. Right? Are you guys with me? Okay, good. But the this and and the it they they don't agree in gender uh, or uh, with that word faith. And so what most scholars believe is that Paul had in mind that it's not just faith, but it's all of what he was just talking about. It's namely salvation. It's God's grace, and it's faith. All of this is a gift of God, not a result of works. And it helps us to see that faith is not works. Faith is required to access God's saving grace, but it is not a good work that we bring to the table. Uh, some people can be mistaken to think that God provides the grace and we provide the faith. That's not the case. It's, it's not, uh, this is all a work of God. It's, it's not a good work on our part. Salvation is all God's doing, not yours, not mine. It's all a gift of God. This truth really eliminates any sort of boasting on our part. We cannot take pride in the faith that we have because just like salvation and God's grace, our faith is a gift of God. This is why the writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Thus far, we've seen that salvation is necessary, you must be saved, and that salvation is God's doing, not ours, as a result of our correct insistence that salvation is by grace alone, that salvation is God's doing, not ours, that we are saved by grace and not by works. We stand the risk of thinking that that work actually is a four-letter word. We hammer home the point of God's sovereignty in salvation because we prize so highly the grace of God. We esteem it so highly, and we know that we cannot add anything to it. So sometimes we start to mistakenly think that good works are a bad thing. But that's not what Paul was communicating here. Paul was saying that you are not saved by good works, but you are indeed saved unto good works. That's point number three. You are not saved by good works, but unto good works. Look at verse 10 with me. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is an absolutely beautiful truth. The the words that Paul used here are fascinating. Uh, First, the the word for workmanship. Uh, The Greek word is poema. And and from it, we get the, the English word poem. Um, their po- poetry is it's, it's really art, and, and this gives us a, a, a feeling of the fact that we are a piece of God's 
artwork. We, we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. Remember how we said that in the coming ages, God would show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages, we will be on display as trophies of God's grace. We'll be reflecting God's glory and pointing to Jesus Christ, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Paul told the Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul would also go on to tell them that all of this is from God. So thus far we've seen that we are saved from God, by God, and through God. We're saved from the wrath of God, by the grace of God, through the Son, through faith in the Son of God, and all of this is a gift of God. Now let's look to see how we are saved for God. Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is where the good works come into play. This includes all the things that we should be doing as followers of Jesus Christ. The Apostle John says that if we claim to abide in Christ, we ought to walk in the same way that he walked. How did Jesus walk? He came not to be served, but to serve. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He, he had compassion on the needy. He loved those who were unlovely. According to John, according to Paul, we ought to walk in the very same way. When we do these good works, we recognize that it has no impact on our salvation whatsoever. Our salvation is secured by the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and, and by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Our good works don't impact that. Even so, our, our, as new creations in Christ, we're called to do good works. God has saved us for a purpose, and that purpose is for his glory. One of the many ways in which God is glorified is by us walking in the good works that he created us to walk in and, and prepared those works for us beforehand. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If you notice that there is a lack of good works in your life, uh, this could be an indication that you're not walking with Christ. It could be an indica indication that maybe you're not even saved. The Apostle James said that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And God has a purpose in saving everyone who is saved. Uh, he didn't save you to a life that is free from good works. On the contrary, he prepared good works for us to do. And so we should be doing them. We should walk in them. That means our life should be marked by them. An outsider should be able to see the good works that we are doing, and they should in turn be able to give glory to God for those good works that they see us doing. Paul began this section back in verse 1 by discussing the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And he finished the section by saying that we should walk in the good works for which we were created. He opened with walking and he closed with walking. And what he wrote in between 
is probably the clearest description of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. We are, our salvation from beginning to end is the result of God's grace. We're saved from God, by God, through God, and for God. John Newton's testimony really serves as a, as a great example for us of, of what salvation is and, and what salvation isn't. John Newton was not saved as a result of a, a close brush with death off the coast of Ireland. He was not saved when he decided that he was going to get his, his life cleaned up. He was not saved when he set aside the bottle. He was not saved when he stopped cussing. He was not saved when he started to read his Bible. John Newton was saved when, by God's grace, he heard the gospel preached by faithful preachers like George Whitfield. He was saved when, by God's grace, the knowledge of the gospel traveled from his head down into his heart. He was saved by God's grace when he turned from sin and trusted fully in Jesus Christ. As a result of being saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, John Newton went from being a slave himself uh, to being a slave ship captain uh, to being really an instrumental force for the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. He was created in Christ Jesus for that very work, and he walked in that work. How about your testimony? Does it line up with Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10? Has God impressed upon you your need for salvation? Have you come to know and believe and trust in Jesus Christ? If not, let me just implore you today, be reconciled to God. Don't wait another day. Don't wait another minute. Repent from sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Commit your life to Christ. If you've already been saved by grace through faith, praise God. Seriously, praise God. This is the point of application for this sermon. Praise God for his saving grace. God alone saves. We can't do any of that. But he saves out of his great love with which he has loved us in Christ. You who have been saved were once lost, but now you're found. You were blind, but now you see. And that is all by God's grace. Continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Get out there. Let your light shine. Love. Do good works. In the name of Christ, do them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we have in your word. We thank you for access to this life-giving truth. We thank you that thousands of years after Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus that the church in Machikilo is able to read these words and to see your grace and to grow in our knowledge of your grace toward us in Christ. Even opening up this scripture is, is a grace from you, Lord. Father, I pray that your Holy, Holy Spirit would impress this truth upon the hearts of all who would hear Lord, I pray for those who 
have been blinded by the enemy, who have been blinded by the culture in which we live, which would tell them that as long as they have comfort, as long as they have health, they have no need of, of anything else. Lord, I pray that you would convict them heavily of sin, that they would see that they have sinned against you, a holy God, and they are truly in need of salvation, that apart from your saving work that they are condemned already, that your wrath remains on them. Lord, we do thank you and praise you for your saving grace. You have saved many by that grace, and how could we possibly thank you enough? Lord, I think our, by living out and walking in the works for which we've been created, uh, this is a great way to, to thank you and to show our, our love for you. May we be obedient to your word, Lord. May we submit our lives and trust in Christ and in him alone for our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.